electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Everybody, I am Brian Sullivan. We begin tonight with breaking news. And a Manhattan grand jury's vote to indict former President Donald J. Trump. Let's get the very latest now with CBC senior Washington correspondent Eamon Javers. Eamon. It's an historic first, Brian. A former president of the United States under indictment and at a time when he's campaigning to retake power in 2024. The former president issued a blistering statement this hour saying, quote, this is political persecution and election interference at the highest level in history. The Democrats have lied, cheated and stolen in their obsession with trying to get Trump. But now they've done the unthinkable, indicting a completely innocent person in an act of blatant election interference. Trump also put out a social media post just a few moments ago calling prosecutors thugs and radical left monsters. Now, a week ago, Trump predicted death and destruction if he were to be indicted, raising questions of whether he was predicting a January 6th style response to charges against him. This afternoon, New York City police were seen reinforcing, barricading areas near the federal courthouse in lower Manhattan. We don't have the specific charges at this time of this indictment just yet, Brian. Just word from Trump's attorney confirming that the indictment has occurred. What we do know is that Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg has been examining the circumstances surrounding a $130,000 hush money payment to former porn star Stormy Daniels during the 2016 presidential campaign. There could be charges around falsification of business records, and there could be charges around campaign finance violations. We're only going to find out when this indictment is ultimately unsealed. All of that raises the specter of a former president of the United States being arraigned in a New York City courthouse, fingerprinted and photographed for a mugshot, even as he continues to receive protection by Secret Service officers uh, and campaign for the presidency. Trump's attorney says he's expected to surrender to the Manhattan DA's office early next week. The Biden White House is not expected to make any statement tonight on the Trump situation. And the question no one can answer at this hour, Brian, is how this indictment will affect the former president's political support. Will his base rally around him in his time of legal peril, or will Trump supporters look for another Republican alternative, such as Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida? We're in uncharted waters here, Brian. Back over to you. Yeah, we have a little way to know, I guess. We are CNBC. We tend to look at markets. And you know what Predict It is, Eamon Javers, mm-hmm. and Predict It, which is the betting site you can sort of wager on political outcomes. Trump, as of right now, with trades minutes ago, is still above DeSantis. His odds of winning, yep. the, the bet, if you will, is down four cents from 46 to 42. DeSantis at 38. So it, ironically, the betting markets aren't really factoring this in as too much of a negative. Eamon, do we know if, if, if Donald Trump will be arrested or rather simply be allowed to turn himself in? We expect that he'll turn himself in next week in Manhattan. So he's going to have to travel to New York. And you can imagine that there will be you know, live coverage of that. Uh, this is going to be a national spectacle, Brian. We haven't seen anything like this ever. Um, but we will see the president at some point fingerprinted in a courthouse, photographed in a courthouse. Uh, There's an open question about uh, whether handcuffs would be involved. You have Mm. to imagine in this case, 
that's extremely unlikely, but we don't have any confirmation yet from authorities about how this is going to be handled. And at the same time, of course, Secret Service officers who are sworn to protect him uh, will be there right at the same time as other law enforcement officers are processing him through the U.S. legal process. Amen. stick around. All right. We're going to bring in now former White House Chief of Staff and former OMB Director Mick Mulvaney, former federal prosecutor Renato Mariotti, and on the phone, former Housing and Urban Development Secretary Julian Castro. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, Mick, your reaction to uh, really your former boss being indicted? Yeah, you know, as as much as I recognize the country is as politicized as it is, and as much as I know the country's trying to sort of tear itself apart at, at times, I'm still a little bit surprised by this. Keep in mind, uh, the, the links between what Trump did on the uh, the Stormy Daniels payment and this crime are, are really very tenuous. He, he, hush money payments are not against the law. This is a, a really sort of minor misdemeanor business accounting <clears throat> tax issue married to a possible campaign finance violation. That's it. As best I can tell, no human being has ever been convicted of this. And it's a novel criminal sort of a, a approach being used against the president of the United States. It's a class E felony, which is the lowest level. In case you're wondering how many felonies there are, there's five, A, B, C, D, and E. It's a very, very minor thing. It was something that a previous district attorney with the same sets of facts and circumstances decided, you know what? No, we're not going to do this. That's what Cyrus Vance decided. So I'm not really sure. I, you know, I, I say I'm not really sure. I know why yeah. it's happening because it's political, but I still don't think it's a very well, good idea at all. Renato, as a former federal prosecutor, obviously the, the indictment is, is still sealed. I, I have not seen it. I doubt you have as well. We don't know everything that is in it. Uh, but to Mick's point, can you explain to our audience the difference of this appears to be a misdemeanor. They've pushed it up to a class E felony. Do you agree with that move to bring it to a class E felony and explain to our audience, most of which are not formal federal prosecutors, what a class E felony actually means? Sure. Well, let me just start by saying I agree with uh, both of you. We haven't seen the indictment yet, much less the evidence underlying it. So I'm very cautious about people who express very strong views about indictments they haven't read. And Have you so seen on. TV so at all lately, Renato? <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Well, this is what I will say. Uh, yes, it is fair to say that um, this if if this is as you know, has been reported in certain sources that this is a falsification of business records case that is made into a felony due to an intersection with campaign finance law. That would be unprecedented, uh, unprecedented, would be questionable, in my view. I think um, it would be a novel legal theory. Um, you know, something similar was done to John Edwards, the D Democratic candidate for president, and resulted in a not guilty uh, result there. So definitely a lot of questions there. Um, and what I would say is, um, you know, is this the sort of case I would bring if it's as reported? No. But it's possible there's more that we don't know. I mean, for instance, they could have a tax uh, angle to this or um, another hush money payment uh, to McDougal that's part of this. It's It's unclear. Um, so I, I'm keeping uh, keeping an open mind to it, but I think that remains to be seen. Uh, and um, Julian Castro, thank you very much for joining us on very short notice. You know, you do wonder, obviously, as a former president, presidential candidate yourself, what does this mean for the 2024 race? And do you worry that as a Democrat, this is just going to splash Trump's name all back over the media again and maybe even raise his chances of regaining the nomination? 
Yeah, good to be with you, Brian. Well, there's no question that it's going to do that. I mean, Trump is going to suck the oxygen out of the room, so to speak, in the 2024 campaign as he goes through the primary. And it can play one of two ways, just speaking politically, as we head into the campaign season. Uh, like you say, take up all of the attention and crowd out uh, every other candidate. We already see GOP primary voters in the last few polls that are rallying around Donald Trump as talk of this indictment has heated up. And now that he has been indicted, we'll have to see whether that continues. On the other hand, in some ways, it makes the case that uh, a Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley or a Mike Pence, uh, the case for their candidacy, a little bit stronger because they can say, look, we'll give you everything that you want with Donald Trump in terms of the policies, but we don't have all of this baggage. And because of that, we can actually win. In the mm-hmm. general election, if he makes it to the general election, there's no way that this helps him. Yeah, uh, uh, Julian, think- one more, one more back to you because, and I want to get your take on this as well. Let's let's say that you know Trump. Listen, Trump has lost a lot of his big money supporters. His family, by all reports, seems to be kind of pushing away from him. So let's say this goes on and he kind of vanishes. He does not win the the, the primary, and it is DeSantis. Or somebody else. Do you worry, Julian, that that as a Democrat, that this could hurt if it is President Biden, if it's Biden's reelection campaign, that there will be millions of Americans who are not particularly political, who have a hard time thinking this this does look like a political attack? I don't think so. And so far, I don't think the polling bears that out. I mean, just this week, you had another poll that showed that the majority of Americans think that he did something either illegal or at least unethical here. And so he's been trying to, to convey this line that this is a witch hunt and this is a banana republic and trying to uh, besmirch the D.A. But I don't think that the majority of voters are buying that, Brian. And, and I think that as the evidence comes forward, uh, as the other guests have said, we don't know yet. We haven't seen the indictment. Obviously, haven't seen all of the evidence that's going to be presented. But I don't think that's going to hold up. You know, we, we listen, we did have year 20 some whatever, 30 years ago, Mick Mulvaney. There, there was a president in the White House who got into a little bit of trouble uh, with the communications intern as well. I don't think I don't think Donald Trump would be the first pre- president or former president to face some legal issues. Um, how does this ultimately play out nationally? It's going to it's going to be the cover of every paper. It is historic as a former president. But how does this ultimately play out for you, for the Republican Party? I think Julian's probably right in a couple of of things. I think it absolutely helps President Trump in a Republican primary. It does. Look, I'm one of his biggest critics. You and I have talked about this several times, but I will defend him on this. This looks like a a crime going to look for looking for an excuse. Right. Again, a previous D.A. with the same facts and circumstances apparently made the decision not to seek an indictment against the president. So it looks like it's politically charged. When you marry it with the FBI raid at Mar-a-Lago, you're going to get folks who say, you know what, I don't like Trump very much, but what's what what's happening here is wrong. And I think that does help in, in a Republican primary. Julian's probably right, I guess, in a general uh, election in that the, the public opinion of, of President Trump, at least amongst half the country, is so low that it's it's probably not going to sway them. So I don't think it helps him win a general election, but I think it makes him more likely to win a, a Republican primary. And I'm not sure that was the intention of the, of the DA. My guess is the DA in New York was more concerned about his own reelection. This is an elected position uh, in that he city. Can, and he, and he did. Uh, Alvin Bragg did campaign on this. It was one of his campaign promises is that I will indict President yeah. Trump. That, I mean, he said it. You can go back you know, and look Brian, at YouTube. Go, Renato. Uh, Brian, it's, it's uh, Eamon here. 
Oh, no, Julian, go ahead. Oh, it's Eamon. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry, Eamon. No, I, I just want to add, when you look at these cases, you know, in history, you often talk about this idea that there's a political channel here and a legal channel here, and sometimes advisors to presidents are stuck because the legal advice that they're getting is not good advice politically. But in this case, the political and legal questions for Alvin Bragg are going to be very similar, right? He's going to have to convince at some point a jury and, and at some point on some level the American people that this was the right case to bring at this time. And he's going to have to explain why now, all these years after these alleged events, which happened in 2016, why now there's some sort of new information or new reason to indict the former president of the United States, because th these facts have been generally known for years, right? And there's been no indictment for years. So now you're going to have to explain why either we know something new, something has changed, we have new legal analysis, or some reason why you're bringing this case now uh, that's not political. So in some ways, Alvin Bragg faces a very yeah. high burden of proof here because of the nature of the defendant in this case. So, and, 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 and the attention. Renato, as, go, is that Julian Castro? I'm sorry, I can't see. Well, one thing I'll, I'll just say, since we jumped in here, I know that uh, Mr. Mulvaney mentioned the raid on Mar-a-Lago. I, I view that very differently, okay? A former president thumbing his nose at the Justice Department, ref refusing uh, to comply with a subpoena. That's a different sort of case. You know, I, was, I, I have very serious questions about this one. I don't about the other one. And one point I will make is, just speaking as a lawyer, I, I'm not an expert in all the politics stuff that's going on here, but as a lawyer, fighting on multiple fronts is a challenge. And so I do think, regardless of the political implications, from a legal perspective, having to deal with these DOJ investigations in January 6th, of Mar-a-Lago, and the Georgia case and so on, while he handles this, really puts things in hard mode for his, his Renata, legal team. Would, as a hey, Brian. Renata, would you, knowing what you know, and there's a lot we don't know, perhaps we'll find out, Renato, knowing what you know, would you have pushed for an indictment? No. Julian hey, Castro, Brian. you're also an attorney. Uh, you can chime in on the legal side as well. And do you worry, to Renato's point, this will reduce the viability of the other investigations that are currently ongoing on the former president? Well, I think that, as many have pointed out in the last couple of weeks, I mean, do you have a number of different potential indictments? Is this the strongest one? Probably not. Um, it's probably not the last one either, though. And so we could be talking two weeks, three weeks from now, two or three months from now about the next shoe to drop. Uh, so uh, I take the point, and I agree that for Trump's legal team, this is going to require quite a Herculean effort. And also, I mean, if we just think about this. It, this also requires somebody of significant means to be able to defend in this many cases, this many jurisdictions at the same amount of, at the same time. So he's going to have his, his hands full. The last point I'll make is to connect this to the political part, that means you're not campaigning. That means a lot of your time is taken up with these legal matters and defending yourself yeah. and, and everything that comes along with it instead of doing the basic blocking and tackling of making sure that he's successful in the 2024 primary and then taking on Joe Biden in the general election. I, I don't know a lot, Julian Castro, but I have a feeling that, that people will now say that Alvin Bragg is committing some kind of election fraud by this. I'm just a guess. Eamon Javers, you, my apologies, buddy. I understand yep. you do have new information. Well, we do, and we're talking about Alvin Bragg, the pressure on him and the, the decision he's made today. We now have a statement from a spokesperson for Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan District Attorney. Uh, the statement is, this evening we contacted Mr. Trump's attorney to coordinate his surrender to the Manhattan DA's office for arraignment on a Supreme Court indictment, which remains under seal. 
Guidance will be provided when the arraignment date is selected. So a statement here uh, from the Manhattan, Manhattan DA's office uh, indicating that Mr. Trump uh, is being, they're coordinating with him to surrender in Manhattan. Not a whole lot of explanation here for all the questions that we've just been talking about, Brian, including why now, why after mm -hmm. all this time, and what, if any, new evidence is here, Brian. And I, we don't know where he is. I, we were showing the plane. Maybe we could bring it back up. Guys, everybody, uh, Mick, Renato, uh, Julian Castro, Eamon, thank you that it looks like Trump's plane, we don't know if it's Trump himself, but the jet that we're showing, and if you're on the radio, we're showing his jet in, I believe that is West Palm Beach, Florida, the big 757 with Trump. So if he is in Florida, will he voluntarily come back to New York? Can they go get him? We're going to find out. All right. Listen, there's going to be a lot of new updates throughout the number of hours, at least in this hour. We will update you with any new developments in this story. And by the way, take a look at Digital World Acquisition. That is the SPAC partner of Trump's True Social, it's actually seeing a big pop after hours. Stock's up 8.5% if you care. All right, so we've covered Trump. It's a big story, but we are CNBC. And I promise there's a lot of other stuff going on. Coming up, China Hawk and subprime king Kyle Bass joins us. Why he says Beijing may be prepping for war over Taiwan. That seems like a big story. Plus, how Wall Street apparently missed the memo on the bank mess being over and a frantic scramble to sell L.A. homes before a new so-called mansion tax kicks in. We'll hear from Million Dollar Listings, Josh Altman and Robert Frank as well. A lot of other stuff going on. We have it next. All right, welcome back to Last Call. And by the way, we are live tonight. Is the bank run really done? Well, if it is, someone forgot to tell Wall Street. Most bank stocks took another tumble today. Some of the usual suspects were in the lineup. Pacific West, First Republic, Valley National, Zions, others all down again, some about 5%. Charles Schwab, look at that, also dropped, losing 5% today. Charles Schwab has now lost a third of its investor value this month. Something to watch. But the big bang was that little-known Metropolitan Bank. Well, not little-known, but smaller. It wiped out 27% of its market cap today. It was hit by a short-seller report. Now, whether you believe that report or not is not the point. The point is that bank investors apparently are still very jumpy. And if you've only had a passing interest in this bank mess, and we don't blame you if you have, maybe this will wake you up. These are the monthly drops of some big regional banks. In one month, First Republic down 89%, PacWest 66, Western Alliance Bank Corp down 51, Zion's Bank down 40%. It has been serious, it has been scary for not only bank investors, but bank clients as well. And here's another serious question. What the heck is going on with Wall Street bank analysts? Take a look at this. We're gonna show you the current price versus the median target price of Wall Street analysts. First Republic today ended at $13.69. The average analyst target price, 92 and change. PacWest ended at $9.43. Average target, just under 24. Western Alliance, $35.91. The average price target of the analysts to cover it, $69.80, just under, just over half. And Zion's Bank, $30.30 with an average target of $51.32. That's not just a little off.
For more on this, let's bring in longtime bank expert, longtime analyst, Odeon Capital analyst Dick Beauvais, CNBC contributor and Empire Financial senior editor Herb Greenberg, and some before business and finance editor Les Hoffman. Thank you all for joining us. Dick, uh, I'm going to go to you because you are an analyst now, but different than, than many of the ones that I just referenced. What is Wall Street missing here, and how bad are some of these estimates going to have to come down in your mind? Well, I think they're going to come down very, very dramatically. I think that uh, what the analysts seem to be missing is that uh, even though the crisis is over in the sense that I don't believe that uh, any banks of size are going to go under any longer, I do believe that the earnings problems with the banking industry are severe. I think that you're going to see lower lending uh, this year. You're going to see lower margins this year. You're going to see higher loan losses this year. And you're going to see higher regulatory costs. So when you put all of that together, you know, apparently you're going to see fairly sizable declines in, in earnings for the industry. Uh, as a result, I think it's going to be uh, continue to be a fairly tough environment for bank stocks. I, I'm not sure they're going to go much lower than they are, but I don't really believe they're going to go much higher either. Herb Greenberg, can we put that chart back up of the target prices and the current price? Because, Herb, this is right up your alley. I mean, this is and there's a lot of good analysts out there, and we have them on CNBC, and I'm not knocking one or some of them, but what I'm saying is this, some, somehow or another, when you've got a $13 stock and a $92 target, something mm-hmm. is going to have to give one way or another. Well, you would think so, but you also have to remember, these prices have moved so fast, so, you know, th- just look at these big declines in, such a, in so few days that I would suspect maybe they're just behind the curve on that. And so that's always been one of the big issues, right, is how fast can they move? Dick is right, because obviously, you know, you know, he knows more than most, but the issue of earnings is there. It's staring you in the face. You know, the issue of, of just having to pay more to your depositors is staring you in the face. So, um, I, I mean, I just think, you know, do the analysts, you know, and you know, it'd be interesting to see which analysts are, you know, you're talking about the mean. I'd like to see the ones that got ahead of the curve because there were some that did get ahead of the curve. I'm sure there's some that lowered their targets on those banks. And I think that's going to be, Liz, the question at the end of the day. And again, nobody, I think, saw the magnitude of this drawdown coming. And the analysts, to Herb's point, have got to go through heads of research and adjust. However, these balance sheets, duration risk, owning long bonds, whatever, that was public information. Any one of our viewers can Google any of these companies' balance sheets right now. I think the broader point, too, is a lot of these analysts who are all very smart women and men missed this huge risk on at least a couple of big banks' balance sheets. I mean, what you have to remember, it's easy, I think it's helpful to look at this as fundamentally a black swan event. And the underlying cause of any black swan event is that something that we thought could never happen happens, right? In 2008, it was that housing prices went down everywhere all at once. Here, and I spoke to uh, the former vice chair of supervision from the Fed, Randy Quarles, last week about this. And he said the the fundamentally flawed assumption was that uninsured depositors did not act the way we expect them to act. And so then that's something that needs to be baked in going forward. And to Herb's point, you're going to have to pay up for deposits if you can even get them. Right now, a lot of these banks have replaced very cheap depositor money with uh, very relatively expensive Fed money. We just saw the Fed balance sheet come out mm-hmm. for the week and a big uptick in that one-year loan facility, which is not cheap. So these margins are going to come down. And if you're a bank analyst, the question is, okay, well, do I think they're going to zero, right? 
And I'm not sure we know. I tend to think no on most of these things. These guys will be fine. But then you say, okay, where's the bottom? What's the true cost of funding here? Uh, And just the margins get compressed very quickly. And so even if you think these things are long-term fine, they're going to trade below book for a long time. It's going to be a while. Uh, Dick Beauvais, Herb Greenberg, Liz Hoffman, we're going to get you all back on. We got a little bit compressed for time tonight, given the obvious breaking news. But thank you. We'll get you back on again very soon. Appreciate it. All right, still ahead, as we noted, the latest breaking details on a Manhattan grand jury voting to indict former President Trump. What his camp is saying about that decision coming up. And, you know, we know we're not the only one covering that story tonight, but L.A.'s mansion tax also about to take effect out west. We're going to speak to an agent from Million Dollar Listing. And it's not just mansions, by the way. This new California tax or L.A. tax, it might surprise you. Welcome back to Last Call Live. Hope you're having a good evening. Is anything anything going on tonight? All right, California never ceases to amaze. We talked the other day about the the energy profits gouging tax slash fee that the state wants to put on big oil. But that's not all. Now they're taking on big house. A new tax will go into effect this weekend. That would be the highest in the country. It begins on Saturday. It is a 4% transfer tax on the sale of properties over $5 million and a 5.5% tax on properties sold for over $10 million. Now, that is on top of the existing transfer tax. So if you sell a home for $20 million, you're going to owe a new tax bill of, of about $1.2 million starting on April 1st, which is like in two days. We're joined now by Josh Altman. He joins us now. He's a luxury real estate broker in Los Angeles. He's one of the stars of Bravo's Million Dollar Listings LA. He's in a car, so clearly he's fleeing LA to Nevada or someplace that's probably a little more tax-friendly. Don't drive. Uh, and Robert Frank will join us in just one second. Um, how, here's the thing. Okay, Josh, nobody's going to care if this is, I hate to say it, your clients will, but 99.99% of the country is not going to care if some $20 million house has a new tax, except this also goes to commercial real estate, does it not? And $5 million bucks for commercial real estate is not a lot of money. Yeah, let me tell you, I'm in my car right now because I got about 24 hours left to close deals before you call it the mansion tax. I call it the dumbest tax ever to, to come into LA. And yeah, not only is it going to affect the people who have $5 million and above, which by the way, is not a mansion in LA. This is a regular 4,000 square foot home with four bedrooms, but this is going to trickle <laughs> down, which is really important. And it's going to affect everybody, the people in the $500,000 condos, the million house, the $2 million house. And the worst part about it is they're taxing you even if you lose money. Everybody's forgetting the market is down right now. If you bought a house two years ago, you probably are are in the red. So you still have to pay this tax even if you lose money. What? Robert Frank, are you? So wait a minute. Wait a minute. Robert Frank. Is Josh right? I assume he is. I mean, he's one of the top real estate agents in the, in the world. You, you got to pay the money even if you lose money in the house. It's like That's like a capital gains tax even if you lose money on a stock. We're sorry you lost 50% of your value, Mr. Sullivan, but here's a $500,000 bill courtesy of Uncle Sam. Yeah, no, Josh, as always, is absolutely right. You know, there are a lot of brokers like Josh in the real estate industry that said, look, let's make this a tax on the profits as opposed to a tax on your capital loss, uh, which is which is actually what it is. 
And again, this is 4% tax on any transaction worth $5 million or more, and a 5.5% tax on any transaction over $10 million. Now again, Josh sounds, yeah, that, that sounds like a lot of money to most people in America, and, and it is. But these are not, many of them, $5 million homes are not huge mansions. You, know, you look at Beverly Hills or the Hollywood Hills, that can be a fairly modest house. And the other big question is, you know, that, that is the most expensive mansion tax in the country. And what we've seen from New York and Hawaii and New Jersey and Connecticut and all these other states and cities that have this tax, tax they tend not to raise the amount of revenue that they're originally promised. Oh, shocking. And I wonder what Josh thinks of these projections that's going to raise between $600 million and a $1 billion. If all the deals are being done now, that's why he's in his car. He's got so many deals to do right now. And that's stealing possible deals post the tax on April 1st. Robert, you you know the deals that I'm doing right now. I'm throwing in everything. I, I, I signed up to be a real estate agent. Right now, I'm also a yacht broker, a car broker, a vacation home broker. I'm doing anything I can to close a deal right now. We actually at the Altman Brothers had the biggest month of our 20 year career in March. Now, I got to save that money because I don't know what's going to happen over the next 60, 90 days. We got a lot of people that are leaving because they're just fed up with it. I'm giving more referrals to Florida, to Texas, to Arizona, Vegas. And, and, and the worst part is here because I'm all about helping the homeless and I'm all about building affordable housing. The worst part is, is that when these people leave, they're going to take the jobs and the people that they employ and they're going to take it to another state. So we're going to lose a lot of jobs here as well. You know, I, I, it's a place of my birth, Los Angeles. I, I love it. But Josh and Robert, you just got, it's like they just keep it's like they're trying to push people out and saying, well, don't worry, we've got the beach. Right. You know, we got the we got good weather, but now they're saying that we that we don't that the, the state's going to be underwater in six weeks or something. Anyway, Josh and Robert. Frank, well, and thank Brian, you. the other they, they're, they're whacking me. Yeah, the other point is this isn't just Trump. residential. It's also commercial real estate. That, yeah, we, we made that at the top. I'm sorry. to make, I'd like to go more. We'll get you back on. We had some Trump news that kind of compressed the top, as they say, Robert yeah. and Josh. Thank you very much. All right. Still ahead. Very serious story. Could China really be about to invade Taiwan? China Hawk and investor Kyle Bass have been going through every Xi Jinping speech and speaking to senior U.S. military officials, you are going to want to hear what he has to say, and you will, but only if you stick around. All right, welcome back. And we are back on last call. Intentions growing between Washington and Beijing. Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen visiting the U.S. this week on a trip that will tour through both North and Central America. Now, the visit comes at a time when Chinese-U.S. relations have reached their lowest point in decades. Now, next week, Ing-wen is supposed to meet with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy at a Reagan Presidential Library event in California. Beijing, unsurprisingly, not happy about that. A Chinese government spokesperson telling reporters this week, quote, we are firmly opposed to this and will take measures to resolutely fight back. What does that mean? Joining us now is Heyman Capital Management founder Kyle Bass. Uh, Kyle, obviously known for subprime, but a, also a big China hawk. And you are actually going to be meeting with the Taiwanese president in New York City uh, pretty much now <laughs> in, in just a short bit. 
What is that meeting going to entail? What are you guys going to talk about? And how big of a threat is China to Taiwan right now? So great to be here, Brian. And yeah, I think this is we're at we're at a hinge in history right now. And I think we all need to realize this isn't the regular news cycle. This isn't, um, you know, a a visit where China is just, uh, uh, let's say, saber rattling a bit. For the last six years, if you really take the time to read Xi Jinping's speeches from the 19th Party Congress in 2017, from the 20th Party Congress uh, last year and just a week ago, the two sessions meeting ended that they have annually and All of his speeches have become increasingly uh, belligerent, and he discusses war. He discusses the reacquisition of the Taiwanese separatists in the 20th Party Congress uh, working papers. And just last last week, all four speeches he gave were war preparation speeches. Where they would normally be, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, normally be more economic focused, maybe domestic agenda focused. And instead, not one of the four. But all four were either extremely hawkish or outright militaristic in some way. I mean, these are his words, not mine. Prepare for war is what he told the, the working Congress or the working party in the two sessions. And then they, they're building 18 new air raid shelters on, their, on the coast of the Strait of Taiwan. They're building a new combat hospital. And they passed a law to commute the sentence of, of incarcerated individuals if they're willing to fight on the front lines of war. Well, what war is he talking about? Well, can we I'm trying to be careful because it is it is such a terrifying concept. There's so many different angles and levels here. Number one, China's been it's fair to say they've been growing their military for years and decades. He is he has accelerated that, but they've always ramped up. Why does it feel different to you this time? Well, you know, 10 years ago, they had they had uh, 36 warships and now they have a Navy bigger than ours. Um, by a I, lot. I, I don't know if it's by a lot, but they, they, have 11, they have 11 shipbuilding yards right now. Think back to you know, the 1930s uh, in, in the United States and, and where we were back then. So if you just think about the, uh, the hinge in history, we have a ground war in Europe. We have a Marxist-Leninist fanatical dictator yeah. uh, that's looking to acquire natural resources and assets around the world. Are we back in 1938, 1939? It actually sure if feels you, like you it. You know, I, in part because of you, I've been reading up on Xi Jinping's childhood and early life, and it's grim. It is. Really I mean, grim. his family, if you, I urge all of our viewers to just do some cursory reading. He was, his father was important. Then he was basically arrested. Xi Jinping at one point lived in a cave, right? He was paraded through town, That's humiliated. Exactly right. You, during the Cultural Revolution. During the Cultural Revolution. And then he came out of it and became the super communist to basically get his reputation back. And now we look where he is. If there was some military action from China on Taiwan, and I know you speak with a lot of people in the Department of Defense, does the U.S. respond in any way? I think we're there with Japan and Australia with the full force of our, of our Navy. Think about the question has been asked to President Biden four times. Every single time he said, we will be there with Taiwan, then the White House backs it down and everybody else, Biden says. everybody else steps back. Our commander in chief, who will actually make the decision, it will only be his, yeah. will decide whether we're it there or not. It won't be the press secretary. It's going to be Biden. Biden's going to do what he's going to do. Taiwan is important yeah. to the national security of the United States, but it's also the fulcrum to all of Southeast Asia and Oceania. And I was just yeah. with the admiral that commands our Pacific fleet. I just hosted him for a day yesterday in Dallas. And I'll tell you that no one wants to fight. 
This is not something I want. It's not something our country wants. No one wants this. But absent Xi Jinping suffering an untimely death, I think this is inevitable. Okay. I want... I might, it's the show's called Last Call. I might need a cocktail right now before the show's over. I want to pivot. You're known, obviously, for subprime. Read the big short. You're, I think you were the first chapter. You and I were in a lot of contact at that point. Thank you yes, for that, by the way. Got me in the forefront of the reporting in many ways. Um, would you have an opinion on this regional? Ba- is this just Wall Street being nervous, or is there, is there anything under the surface here? Nah, look, Brian, it's real. We know what happened in Silicon Valley Bank. It was a, it was a duration problem. You know, yeah. when, you know, there's all their deposits got withdrawn in like a couple of days. Right. I mean, look, we can set limits to the, to the amount of uninsured deposits that banks are allowed because we as a government uh, back those deposits. So we have a lot of say in the structuring of that bank. What was, what was, what was really missed there is the regulatory oversight. I mean, the regulators knew it. They met with the bank many times. Where was Mary Daly on this? Good question. I, you know, it's San Francisco you, Federal Reserve had the Silicon Valley Bank CEO on it as well as somebody from the Screen Actors Guild. I know. You know, I, they do a lot of crazy things out there on the West Coast, but they miss this one. You used uh, to live in San Francisco. <laughs> part-time. Part-time. <laughs> part-time. Don't go there. Seems hard to believe. <laughs> to be no, but, but is this banking thing anywhere at all like 08 and 09 or no? Okay. My, my question for you is, why do we allow the held to maturity account? Why don't we just mark everything to market? Why doesn't everyone know where everything is? I have no idea. You answer your own question. I don't know. It's because we don't want to cause bank runs. But when people look into that account and realize that there's no equity left in the bank if they were to have to liquidate, that scares people. Is the worst behind us for the banks, you think? I don't think so. You don't think so? Europe never recapitalized their banks. In the U.S., we put about $800 billion of preferred and common equity into our system. We had a trillion going into the global financial crisis. We recapitalized our whole system. Europe doesn't have an ability to recap their system yeah. because they don't have a central tax. Bigger, bigger issue, because they're different issues. We tried to lay it out the other night. Bigger issue. The U.S. regional bank stock panic, whatever you want to call it, Deutsche Bank. Which one? Which was a bigger macro issue for the U.S.? Oh, uh, for the U.S.? For the U.S. The U.S. system. Okay. Yeah. But Deutsche Bank is important. It's one of the G the 30. 30 G Well, now there's 29. Correct. Because Credit Suisse is gone. That's right. That's right. Deutsche Bank is a big deal. I think Deutsche Bank's a liquidity crisis, not a solvency crisis. Uh, Explain the difference to our audience that may not be working on the losses. The losses aren't uh, in their portfolio like they were at Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse started as a liquidity crisis, and it turned out to be a solvency crisis. I don't believe Deutsche Now, I haven't seen their books in depth. I don't believe they have a solvency crisis. But Deutsche Bank has $19 billion of stock market equity and a trillion five of assets. It's very thinly capitalized. We're going to leave it at that. Kyle Bass, um, good luck at the dinner tonight. Let us know how it goes with Taiwan's president. Very big deal. All right. Uh, Very serious interview, folks. Why don't we lighten it up a little bit, shall we? Anything is lighter. And head to quicker than the ticker, all the news that matters to your money and maybe a few stories that don't matter at all. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock and go. Take me out to the union. Baseball's opening day and minor league players are the latest to unionize. They officially reached a tentative deal with the MLB. It now goes to a vote. Quite the scene at a robbery gone wrong. Two teens who tried to rob a Cadobo restaurant fell from the ceiling. They were hiding in an attempt to avoid being arrested. The Lamborghini dealer bummed out. Wall Street bonuses tumbled 26% last year to an average of about $177,000. That is down about $60,000 from the year before. 
someone call Spock. Researchers have found a new ultra-massive black hole. It is more than 30 billion times the mass of our sun. Rap's first billionaire is now a double billionaire. Forbes says Jay-Z is now worth 2.5 billion bucks. That's up about a billion dollars from last year. And that's all the time we've got. All right, coming up and happening now, people beginning to gather in lower Manhattan. One, look at that, lock him up. So these are, these are people happy that Trump has been indicted. We'll get more on that with Eamon Jabbers coming up just after this short break. All right, Explosive Day in Politics, in case you missed it, a New York grand jury voted today to indict former President Donald J. Trump. He is now the first former president to face criminal charges. Eamon Jivers has the latest. Eamon. Brian, take a look at the scene now at the courthouse. We're just about three hours since this news broke. The former president, of course, last week predicting death and destruction uh, if he were to be indicted. As of this hour, though, uh, at the courthouse in lower Manhattan, we're not seeing a whole lot of activity. Things are pretty quiet there. According to our producers on the scene, uh, there are a few uh, anti-Trump protesters who are celebrating the fact uh, that the former president of the United States uh, has been indicted. Our producers on the ground there not seeing uh, evidence of visible support uh, for the former president of the United States. This despite, you know, the barricades and the increased police activity that we saw from the New York PD uh, this afternoon, bracing for any type of reaction so far. Uh, all is well there. Uh, not a whole lot to report in terms of the scene on the ground. Let me also flag for you, Brian, this tweet that we saw from Ron DeSantis, because I think it sort of explains the mind-bending political and legal moment that we're in. Ron DeSantis, of course, the governor of Florida. Ron DeSantis, of course, a Trump rival. Trump is routinely denouncing Ron DeSantis these days on the campaign trail. Uh, and Ron DeSantis will be running against President Trump uh, for uh, the Republican nomination. He s calls this a Soros-backed Manhattan district attorney who has constantly bent the law to, down, uh, to downgrade felonies and to excuse criminal misconduct. He's denouncing the DA. But he also says this, Florida will not assist in an extradition request given the questionable circumstances at issue with this Soros-backed Manhattan prosecutor and his political agenda. So Ron DeSantis there raising the very bizarre spectacle of the idea of Florida police authorities declining to respond to an extradition request from New York authorities uh, in order to protect Donald Trump. While DeSantis is Trump's biggest rival sitting in the governor's mansion in Florida, uh, Trump sitting in Mar-a-Lago, uh, that's extraordinarily unlikely to happen, might not be legally or politically relevant. But the, just the fact that DeSantis is raising the idea that he would not participate in an extradition of the former president of the United States from Florida shows you what a strange legal and political landscape we're in now, Brian. So it's possible Trump doesn't leave. Nobody makes him leave. Yeah, he all, just never all, goes back to New York again where he would be arrested if he did, I guess. I mean, right. But all indications are that I mean, Trump I'm has just agreed. saying that is yes, a that's the scenario. possibility. That is the bizarre scenario that's raised by the DeSantis tweet. Uh, but, of course, Trump has, uh, we've seen the signaling now that Trump will surrender in Manhattan next week. And then, of course, the question of whether federal authority legally would trump uh, state authority in Florida anyway, and whether federal authorities would uh, make an arrest in a case that uh, Trump were to fail to surrender uh, in Manhattan, as the, all the indications are that he will next week. So uh, it's yep. not even necessary for DeSantis to raise it. 
that the fact that he is raising it, though, shows us what a weird world this is, where his Trump's biggest rival is in power in Florida, in charge of state policing authority that impacts the president, the former president of the United States, who is running for president. Strange yeah, day. Class, e, class E felony, which is the lowest felony, but still a felony nonetheless, basically selling yep. a, a, a signif- somewhat significant amount of, of, of illegal drug would be sort of an equivalent class E. Eamon Javers, thank you very much. All right. Meantime, in non-Trump news, and there is non-Trump news, House Republicans successfully passed their energy bill today. It's technically called H.R. 1, but it's also dubbed the Lower Energy Costs Act. Joining us tonight is Liberty Energy Chairman and CEO Chris Right. Lower energy. I think I said liberty. Lower energy costs act. By the way, all these you got to you got to admire Democrats and Republicans. They've got these creative names, Chris. Inflation Reduction Act. Right. Lower energy costs act. It's like unicorns and 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 magic act. Anyway, your take. What does this mean if assuming it passes and is not vetoed? What does it mean for liberty and your, your industry? It's a great step in the right direction. This is a small step towards sobriety, both on energy and on just basic infrastructure. You know, the problem with the U.S., it's just become so hard to do anything. I remember visiting Europe 30 years ago. It's beautiful, but hard to do anything. America is becoming that now. You know, we can't build wind turbines or, or transmission lines. It's not just oil and gas. But I think this is some common sense reform that hopefully will bring more money, more investment in the United States and produce more oil and gas in the U.S. instead of importing it from abroad. What's wrong with that? Well, I think what I think what the president has said, he's going to veto if it passes the Senate. And by the way, four Democrats did vote for Republicans and one Republican voted against it. President Biden has said he is going to veto it. If he does, do you believe that the reason he's going to veto it, Chris? And I'm going to ask you to, you know, obviously editorialize here. Is that because part of the bill strips out 27? I think it is 27 billion for an environment, an EPA uh, greenhouse gas fund. Yeah, he probably does veto it for that reason. Could there be a negotiation that keeps that alive and the other reforms in place? That's certainly possible. But certainly his agenda has been all of government approach in theory against climate change. But preventing oil and gas production in the United States does nothing for climate change. It doesn't change the demand for oil and gas at all. It just means we import more. It's produced in dirtier areas. It has nothing to do with climate change. But he sort of run on this policy that if you oppose fossil fuels, somehow that makes the world a better place. Yeah. And, and how important is quickly permitting reform to you and your business? Oh, it's huge. It's huge. It's not just for drilling on federal lands where you've got to get federal permits. But if you only have so much on private land and some on federal land, you're going to drill on private land more slowly if you think your inventory might be disappearing yeah. on your federal land. It matters a lot for our industry, Brian. Well, I appreciate you coming on. It matters a lot that you came on to Last Call Live. Thank you very much, Chris. Best to you and your team. Talk to you soon. All right, folks, the former president, Donald Trump, indicted by Alvin Bragg in New York. That is Last Call for tonight. Shark Tank is next. See you.